Welcome to the 428th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome philosopher and teacher Keith Maggie Brown to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on the COVID Calls YouTube channel at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although for the next few weeks, we're having COVID Calls at a number of different times throughout the day. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of today, February 23rd, 2022, 941,678 people have lost their lives from COVID-19 in the United States. In South Korea, 7,607 have died of the disease. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now by reading the obituary Paul Farmer. The headline, Paul Farmer, a pioneer of global health, dies at 62. This was written by Ellen Berry and Alex Traub and appeared February 21st, 2022 in the New York Times. Paul Farmer, a physician, anthropologist, and humanitarian who gained global acclaim for his work delivering high-quality health care to some of the world's poorest people, died on Monday on the grounds of a hospital and university he had helped establish in Butara, Rwanda. He was 62. Partners in Health, the global public health organization that Dr. Farmer helped found announced his death in a statement that did not specify the cause. Dr. Farmer attracted public renown with Mountains Beyond Mountains, the quest of Dr. Paul Farmer, a man who would cure the world, a 2003 book by Tracy Kidder that described the extraordinary efforts he would make to care for patients, sometimes walking hours to their homes to ensure they were taking their medication. He was a practitioner of social medicine, arguing there was no point in treating patients for diseases only to send them back into desperate circumstances that contributed to them in the first place. Illness, he said, has social roots and must be addressed through social structures. His work with Partners in Health significantly influenced public health strategies for responding to tuberculosis, HIV, and Ebola. During the AIDS crisis in Haiti, he went door to door to deliver antiviral medication, confounding many in the medical field who believed it would be impossible for poor rural people to survive the disease. Though he worked in the world of development, he often took a critical view of international aid, preferring to work with local providers and leaders, and he often lived among the people he was treating, moving his family to Rwanda and Haiti for extended periods. News of Dr. Farmer's death rippled through the world of medicine and public health on Monday. There are so many people that are alive because of that man, Dr. Rochelle P. Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said in a brief interview, adding that she wanted to compose herself before speaking further. 
Dr. Anthony S. Fauci, President Biden's top medical advisor, broke down in tears during an interview in which he said he and Dr. Farmer had been like soul brothers. When you talk about iconic giants in the field of public health, he stands pretty much among a very, very short list of people, said Dr. Fauci, who first met Dr. Farmer decades ago when Dr. Farmer was a medical student. He added, he called me his mentor, but in reality, he was more of a mentor to me. In the latter part of his career, Dr. Farmer became a public health luminary, the subject of a 2017 documentary, Bending the Ark, and the author of 12 books. In 2020, when he was awarded the $1 million Berggren Prize given annually to an influential thought leader, the chairman of the prize committee said Dr. Farmer had reshaped our understanding of what it means to treat health as a human right and the ethical and political obligations that follow. Dr. Farmer, who never settled into the easy life of an elder statesman, was vigorously involved in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, prodding the Biden administration to drop intellectual property barriers that prevented pharmaceutical companies from sharing their technology. It's not just about health security in the senses of defending yourself, he said. It's not just about charity, although that's not so bad. It's also about pragmatic solidarity with those in need of assistance. Paul Edward Farmer Jr. was born on October 26, 1959 in North Adams, Massachusetts. Paul's mother, Ginny Rice Farmer, worked as a supermarket cashier, and his father, Paul Sr., was a salesman and high school math teacher. When Paul was around 12, his father bought an old bus and fitted it with bunks, converting it into a mobile home. Paul, his parents, and his five siblings spent the next few years traveling, mostly in Florida, living for a time on a boat moored on a bayou. He credited this period with giving him a very compliant GI system, a knack for sleeping anywhere, and an inability to be shy or embarrassed. One summer, he and his family worked alongside Haitian migrant workers picking oranges, listening curiously as they chatted to one another in Creole from atop ladders. That was Paul's first encounter with Haiti, the country that would captivate him in his 20s and then propel him toward a career in public health. After graduating from Duke University, he moved to Haiti, volunteering in Kanje, a settlement in the central Caribbeanite plateau of the country. He arrived toward the end of the dictatorship of Jean-Claude Duvalier, when Haiti's hospital system was so threadbare that patients had to pay for basic supplies, like medical gloves or a blood transfusion, if they wanted treatment. In a letter to a friend, he wrote that his stint at the hospital wasn't turning out as he had expected. It's not that I'm unhappy working here, said the letter, excerpted in Ms. Kid Mr. Kidder's book. The biggest problem is that the hospital is not for the poor. I'm taken aback. I really am. Everything has to be paid for in advance. Dr. Farmer decided to open a different kind of clinic. He returned to the United States to attend Harvard Medical School and earn a degree in anthropology, but he continued to spend much of his time in Kanje, returning to Harvard for exams and laboratory work. Over the years, Dr. Farmer raised millions of dollars for an ever-expanding network of community health facilities. He had a contagious enthusiasm and considerable nerve. When Thomas J. White, who owned a large construction company in Boston, asked to meet him, he insisted that the meeting take place in Haiti. Mr. White eventually contributed a million dollars in seed money to Partners in Health, which Dr. Farmer founded in 1987 along with Ophelia Dahl, whom he had met volunteering in Haiti, a Duke classmate, Todd McCormack, and a Harvard classmate, Dr. Jim Young Kim. 
1996, he married Dee Dee Bertrand, the daughter of a pastor and a school principal. She was described in Mr. Kidder's book as the most beautiful woman in Kanje. She became a researcher for Partners in Health and survives Dr. Farmer along with their three children, Catherine, Elizabeth, and Sebastian, his mother, his brothers, James and Jeffrey, and his sisters, Katie, Jennifer, and Peggy. Clinic in Haiti, at first a single room, grew over the years to a network of 16 medical centers in the country with a local staff of almost 7,000. Among them was a teaching hospital in Mirabale, about 40 miles north of Port-au-Prince that opened in 2013 and offered chemotherapy drugs, a gleaming new $700,000 CT scanner, and three operating rooms with full-time trauma surgeons. There, poor patients with difficult diseases paid a basic fee of around $1.50 a day for treatment, including medication. Partners in Health also expanded into Rwanda, where Dr. Farmer helped the government restructure the country's health system, improving health outcomes in areas like infant mortality and the HIV infection rate. Dr. Farmer died in Butaro, a mountain town on the border of Uganda, where he and Partners in Health collaborated with the Rwandan government to build a complex devoted to health and health education. Dr. Farmer also helped develop new public health approaches in Peru, Russia, and Lesotho, among other places. He was particularly proud of the fact that the clinics he helped build were staffed by local doctors and nurses whom he had trained. I'm not cynical at all, he once said. Cynicism is a dead end. Over the years, he kept in touch with many of his patients, as well as their children and grandchildren. He was godfather to more than 100 children, most of them in Haiti, said Laurie Noel, a close friend and board director at Partners in Health. Over the weekend, Dr. Farmer sent her a photo of a colorful bouquet of flowers he had put together for one of his terminally ill patients in Rwanda. Not my best work, the accompanying text said. At a very tender heart, she said, seeing pain and suffering was very hard for him. It just hurt him. I'm a social worker by training. One thing I learned is about detachment. He wasn't detached from anyone. That's the beauty of it. The obituary of Paul Farmer, who died this week at age 62. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. This is one that I've really been looking forward to, and let me introduce my guest, Keith Maggie Brown. Keith is a Denton-based poet philosopher, spiritual counselor, and mind walker. Besides their academic co-publications and intermittent podcasting, Maggie creates aphorisms to encourage their friends on the way to self-actualization. They have directed a few conferences at the University of North Texas in Denton since 1998, the North Texas Heidegger Symposium, Process Studies in Pedagogy, and the UNT Comics, Graphic Novel, and Serial Arts Studies Workshop. Besides being a lifetime member of the Carl Jasper Society of North America, they are also a member in good standing with other philosophy groups like the Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy, as well as the Society for Phenomenology and the Human Sciences. Along with mentoring youth who want to practice philosophizing as a way of life, Maggie works to make ancient texts more accessible for 21st century readers. Among his collaborations are a translation of the Tao Te Ching, with Professor Lu Wenlong of Dalian University, and Greek Natural Philosophy, the Pre-Socratics and their importance for environmental philosophy with Professors J. Baird Calicott and John Van Buren. 
After completing their master's degree in philosophy, they now are close to completing their dissertation for the PhD at the University of North Texas. The title is Untying the Knots that Bind, Existential Elucidation and the Transgressive Life. Maggie's work focuses on queering academic research and weirding professional philosophy. Keith, Maggie Brown, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's good to see you, Keith. It's good to see you too. So <clears throat> we've had so many conversations outside of COVID calls that having you on is a, is a kind of uncanny experience, but I've really been looking forward to this. And um, as I'm moving towards episode 500 next month, I'm mm -hmm. taking the prerogative to have conversations with, with friends who also happen to be experts in their own areas right. and right. you really fit that bill. So let, let me start the way that I usually do just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic looks there. Well, I'm calling in from Denton, Texas, which is about 30 ish miles above Dallas and Fort Worth in Texas. So it's uh, about 30 miles above them and about 60 or 90 miles from the Oklahoma border. Um, you know, COVID is uh, COVID's hit hard here um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, as you know, being originally from Texas, the, the state government has not, been as cooperative with a lot of things uh you know it's, so it's been up to like the mayors and the county judges of large counties like dallas and um houston and in those places to try to like take care of things but they're always battling with the state uh you know and they've ended up in a lot of court cases because of it they're you know our hospitals almost collapsed uh, at one point because there's just so much going on with the, the pandemic. Um, you know, outside of that, I, I can say that <clears throat> it's a weird thing. If you're in Dallas, the county judge of Dallas County is someone I went to high school with, Clay Jenkins. And so he's really stood very firm against the governor and State Department of Health. And he's uh, imposed a lot of protections and mandates. Uh, even closed uh, the college, uh, Dallas College, if he if he thought it was uh, necessary. And people in Dallas, uh, in those places, you kind of like see them wearing masks and and being a little more thoughtful about masks. But then I also teach over in Tarrant County, and over there it's like the Wild West. You know, they're <laughs> you're from Arlington, so you know what it's like. They yeah, they they're just like uh, you know I, I, if I were if when I'm in a when I'm in a classroom in Denton or Dallas, almost everybody's wearing a mask. When I'm in Tarrant County, uh, two people out of 30 are wearing a mask, you know, and, and I, and I'm getting, you know, regularly getting students, uh, who are not able to come to class because they have to, you know, they've been exposed to COVID or they've been diagnosed with COVID. So it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird, uh, kind of subject. Uh, excuse me, it's a weird situation to me because <sighs> and none of it's necessary and to the degree that, you know, all these people are just trying to get along in some way. But on the other hand, they're they're doing all these things that are dangerous. And so that's kind of where I'm at with the whole thing. I mean, kind of watching it. My husband and I just sort of stay at home and don't really do a lot anymore. 
Uh, and uh, it's not that there's not a lot out there to do, but his mother has uh, pre-existing conditions. I have certain pre-existing conditions, so I have to be careful. So, you know, you, considering that so many people just don't seem to want to take any precautions, um, you kind of end up in this situation of just absenting yourself from it all. What do you own the, the difference between the two counties? I think it's a really compelling and interesting example. Yeah. Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex. <laughs> it's a big sprawling area. Yeah. But it has urban, suburban, and even quite rural areas still yeah. within it. You know, I'm not really sure. I think Dallas is filled with more. Um, I want to say Dallas is uh, Dallas County has it's it's not that it's not conservative. It's just that it has a lot more um, a, a broader variety of people. And I think that um, it's always been maybe a little more formal than Fort Worth. And maybe there's an aspect, I think, in Tarrant County where the people are like really trying to prove how Texan they are by just being free, you know. And uh, that's kind of what I see in most of the counties when you get farther away from the cities, right, is this idea that it's not really that big of a deal. It's not an issue. I'm a free, responsible adult and I'll do what I want to do, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So I think that's a part of it. Also, uh, Dallas has Dallas County has a lot more uh, international. Not that Tarrant doesn't, but there's just a lot of international uh, immigrants that live in Dallas including high South Asian and East Asian uh, immigrants who really already didn't think twice about wearing a mask. Right. So, so I've been asking guests to <clears throat> share a memory of this pandemic time, the impossible question in, because of the density of memory. But I, I wanted to put that question to you. Um, we've been at this for two years now. What do yeah. you, what kind of associations do you have in your own memories of, of COVID? Um, you know, the worst thing that happened didn't really have to do with the, 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 uh, the pandemic. My mom died in 2019. So I would say one memory that sustained me through this whole thing is that in March of 2020, I was glad my mother was dead because she was in a memory care nursing home. And if she lived another six months or a year, this would have all been that horrible thing, right? So there's a part of that. But then she was the last of two of her siblings, of 10 siblings who was left alive. Uh, she was very old. Uh, my uncle, her youngest brother, when she died, was the last of those people. So this is what I mean when I say that it's not directly related to the COVID thing, is that he he... And his ex-wife and his son all died in a fire. They, they got caught in a fire in a little home. And then they, they, uh, uh, the, his ex-wife died. And his, he and his son were so badly burned, they had to be taken from Abilene to Parkland. And then they died a couple of weeks later. The issue was is that all of this was happening during the Delta surge. I couldn't go to their funeral. So that... To me, that's a, and I couldn't be there to help my, uh, my cousins who, who were left behind, you know, uh, in, in person. So I couldn't, 
that sort of thing was very irritating to me. It was very disappointing and very depressing. Um, you know, and uh, that's really probably the strongest memory I have of the whole thing of thinking regularly, I'm glad mom's gone. And then I, I wished I lost at least six cousins, uh, two uncles and an aunt and a few others whose funerals I couldn't go to. Well, I'm really sorry about that trauma in your, in your family. And, and thanks for sharing the memory of your mom. You know, I can really relate to that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I was really close with my grandparents and um, my stepmom's father died, uh, not of COVID, but, you know, I was not able to attend his, his funeral. Um, his wife is still alive, which is great. And she's the, the last of my grandparents, you know, my parents divorced and remarried. And, and so yeah. I had a lot of grandparents and I was, close, I was close to all of them. And, but I have, and I've shared this before on COVID calls, but I keep coming back to it that in the early days of the pandemic, I felt real fear at, at a couple of junctures for people in my life who were already dead. And I sort of shook myself at it. That they had died years before, but somehow that fear moved across time. I wonder if that happened to you with your mom. It did uh, in a certain kind of way, but I see when my when my brother died in 2012, I actually one of the ways that I made made it through him dying was recognizing it was an opportunity to kind of see the way memory works in the body uh, when you cognitively know that a person's dead, but then you remember them and your body acts like they're there. Like, ah, there they are. And then your mind says, no, they're not there anymore. And then your body's like, oh no. And you get sort of twisted and turned in this kind of way. Right. And so I had thought a lot about that over the few years after he passed away. And then when she died, I saw that. And so I, there were times in March and, and through March and, and uh, July where I would sometimes have dreams about her or I'd wake up, uh, you know, or I would, you know, just like see her picture pop up on my computer and I would have a little jolt of, I hope she's okay. Oh God, she's dead. Good. Which that part was to me always the right. Not the, that she's, that she didn't have to live through it. That I would think it's good. She's dead. It's a really weird thing for, especially for an existentialist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it is a weird thing. <clears throat> that's the ultimate, ultimate value, but it's also a sign of the compassion that you have for your, for your mom and that continues, yeah. Yeah. which is incredibly valuable and sustaining. I wonder if, if she were alive, what do you think would have been her reaction to this pandemic? Well, she survived polio. So, you know, um, so she'd been through a lot as a kid. And, and of course, you know, we didn't come for money or anything. So she, definitely was even poorer than I was growing up. So, um, 
you know, she, she had been a survivor. She outlived my dad by 20 years, but she had reached a point. She had uh, dementia uh, and we didn't, you know, we never did all of the extra, you know, tests to see if it was Alzheimer's or whatever. It's, you know, what the real cause of it was. The dementia was there. So she was in memory care uh, in a, a home in Abilene because I'd promised her I'd never move her out of Abilene. She was scared that I was going to move her out of Abilene. Right. So, you know, when she got to a point where she couldn't live by herself, I, I, you know, found a place and uh, she went to the memory care and I just, I don't know what she would have done because the deal was, is that even though I only got to see her every two weeks, you know, I'd go out there every two weeks and see her. Uh, she, she didn't have a great memory, but as soon as she saw me, she always knew me and she was excited to see me and, and everything. And I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for her. First of all, not really understanding time and what's going on and then not being able to see a single person she knows mm. because, you know, that's, that's what we did those first five or six months of the thing or sometimes even longer than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like. <clears throat> I, I think about all of those stories of, um, you know, people going to have these sort of window conversations with loved ones who are in long term care facilities, memory yeah. care facilities, whatever it may be. And um, that's probably what you would have had to do. But it would have been so disorienting. Yeah, especially for somebody who's got, you know, dementia, they, they wouldn't understand why you don't come in. And they wouldn't understand why you don't open the window if you're not going to come in. And they, you know, they would feel like I, I really think she would have felt trapped more and gotten more upset. Uh, it literally would have. And that's the thing of why I said it was good. I'm glad that she passed before all this happened, because I don't really believe there would have been a way to really visit with her, they wouldn't have made her more upset and more troubled. So it would have been better not, mm. but that would have been even more horrible, right? It's like, now I'm just not even visiting my mother. I, so, you know, what is it with that generation and West Texas and, and their total fixed fixedness to place. My grandfather <laughs> could have been, you know, after my grandmother died, you know, he yeah. lived to be almost hundred and, and he could have moved and been close to my family in Austin, yeah. San Antonio, mm -hmm. Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex. And he stuck out there in Odessa in that little house he had lived in since 1946 and watered his, you know, dying tomato plants every day and made sure his, his sprinkler went on even to the very end of his, almost to the very end of his life. You just couldn't get him out of that place. Yeah, I mean, this was an issue with Mama, too. I mean, when it finally reached the place where I was like, you can't stay here anymore. I, I you know, I, I really kind of just had to make the decision to move her there. But then because I did that, I was very adamant that I wouldn't move her away. And my uncle, who passed away a year and a half after her or a year or so after her, uh, had broken down crying, begging me not to take her away from Evelyn. Mm. So, you know, I'm like, OK. Uh, you know, and then, I'll, but, you know, she, I had cousins and I had an aunt, especially my dad's sister, uh, who was, uh, always there. And, you know, I, I knew that, that she had that kind of familiarity of people around, but yeah, the West Texas thing, I think it has to do with the Badlands actually. 
the Abilene's sort of the opening, it's kind of the gateway to the frontier and the Badlands and everything. And so it's, uh, um, I think there's an actual, if I, if you want me to be woo woo, I think there's an actual <laughs> energetic connection to that mm-hmm. desert prairie land, uh, that people don't really want to get away from. I mean, as soon as my parents didn't really want to live in Waxahachie, they went there cause they, they just couldn't make it in Abilene. So I was raised in Waxahachie, but as soon as they got done, I was in Denton and they were retired. They moved right back to Abilene. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's really interesting. Um, I think if yeah. people who haven't been out in that part of the country may not know, I mean, you could go outside your back door and you can see great distances and you mm-hmm. see weather coming from great distance. I know that had an impact on my grandfather. He just felt safe there. Now, of yeah. course, it's the center of the petrochemical production industry in the United States. The air quality yeah. is terrible. It's not fit to breathe. They had a terrible pandemic outbreak in, in Midland, Odessa. But yeah. I know that he would have continued to feel safe there. Yeah. Now, I have, I have uh, you know, and, and even Chris and I, I know that Abilene is way more, this is, so this is kind of an interesting thing to pull. Uh, I know Abilene's way more conservative than anywhere we've lived here in Denton or Dallas or Austin. Uh, But just like I could live in Waxahachie again, I could live in Abilene with no trouble. I could, I could just go there and I'm at home. Like when we go out there, I think sometimes Chris is surprised at how homey I am. Well, it's like, yeah, well, I grew up here. I mean, I, every summer, you know, for, 20 years I was, I was here and this is my place. So, but, um, yeah, I don't, <laughs> on the other hand, they had a lot of trouble in Abilene and San Angelo all the way out into the Permian basin with COVID once it finally got there. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with philosopher Keith Maggie Brown today. And let's let's keep going on this because I, I wanted to kind of start in this way so that we could talk a bit about memory mm-hmm. and philosophy of memory and COVID. You know, <clears throat> memory, I've been doing a lot of interviews with people who have been involved with memorialization projects from the beginning, and sure. I've been pretty insistent on memorial, even at times when people said, why do you do a memorial when the disaster is ongoing? And I have my reasons. I mean, I think we we're particularly amnesiac in the United States, but mm-hmm. but I, I want to go a little deeper with that with you in, in terms of how you think COVID memories will be processed individually, uh, but then also collectively, and what kind of work we could be doing right now to try to facilitate the implantation of memory. Cause I really worry that people there's this move to normalize and close and get past COVID. And I think it's dangerous, frankly. Well, it's this, it's following the same trajectory. And I would say with this, this is actually a trajectory in the AIDS epidemic that was almost orchestrated by Anthony Fauci. Let's move along now. Like we're, we're getting back, you know, so anyway, a lot of people in the queer community or the quilt bag community, are uh very uh they're they're reminding a lot of people that anthony fauci was actually the reason that the aids epidemic just sort of you know hey it's 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 we got it under control now so we're going to go on it's still there 
it's right. still it's never gone away. Right. I mean, we were just listening to Dr. Farmer's uh, reading Dr. Farmer's obituary and it's the same kind of issues. Yeah. Let go of the damn patents. So these people in Africa and these other countries can have some of these things that we've developed. Well, that's what they did with the AIDS stuff. And that's what they're doing now with this stuff, you know? And so it's, uh, I think, uh, so the reason I'm bringing all that together is to say one thing that the quilt bag community did, um, and you know, for your, uh, friends, uh, that are listening that don't know the term quilt bag, I use it instead of LGBTQIA because it, that's, <laughs> that's just a list of letters. Long. Quilt bag at least gives you a little something. Quilt bag stands for queer, questioning, undecided, intersex, lesbian, trans, bisexual, asexual, gay or gender queer so you know it's quilt bag quilt bag two uh and so among quilt bag folks we created the AIDS quilt and it's like that became a way we're not going to forget these people government doesn't want to talk about it and you know they don't want us to remember this they want us to forget about it and move on these people don't matter anyway and really, I would say <clears throat> I get a little pushback from my students when I make this argument, at least at first. But our healthcare system is basically a healthcare system that's built to um, to to sort of uh, instantiate a survival of the fittest thing, hmm. not to actually proffer Hippocratic care, right? And uh, so. In that regard, 930,000 people have died and lots of people don't care and they don't care because it doesn't affect them. And because it doesn't affect them, uh, you know, it, and, and they basically sometimes act like. Well, you know, they weren't fit to survive. That's the kind of it's there. It's there in the intention, in the if you really kind of start parsing the things people are saying, you know, mm -hmm. Like it, and it, and it's a, it's a corollary of, of, of our whole, uh, within our whole healthcare industry. And that is, why do I want to help? Why do I want to have universal healthcare? Because that'll just make other people healthier that I have to compete against. Hmm. So if I've got healthcare and you don't, that's, that's one for me and zero for you. Right. So, and I think that that's all wrapped up into the way that we've dealt with the, the COVID deal. It's, that's why we almost killed a million people while, while Korea <laughs> has only yeah. lost 7,000 people. How's yeah, that even possible? And, and I mean, for me living in this, I don't know how that's even possible. I, you know, it's a, we're at a kind of a crucial juncture right now because Omicron is breaking here at 171,000 new cases yesterday mm -hmm. um, in the, in the country. Um, but the death rate, which is higher here than it's been at any point is still uh i don't want to speak out of term but it's been under 100 and um a day which is unthinkable in the united states at a point at which people said oh you know moving into a sort of endemic phase some people are saying that yeah um and to still have you know approaching 3000 in some cases deaths a day over 3000 but let me go a little further with this because yeah. i want to ask you about the sort of politics of the memory i'm really glad you brought up the aids quilt and the quilt bag community concept, you know, I think you could get a U.S. history textbook, maybe not in Texas, but 
but maybe. <laughs> well, that, and that and, if you couldn't and, get it in Texas, you might not be able to get it anywhere else. I, well, that's true. They they <laughs> they they definitely control the book they buying market around the, the country. Yeah. But I I don't. Maybe listeners can correct me on this, but I think you it's not unthinkable, certainly for a college text, that you would find a photograph now in a textbook of the AIDS quilt. Sure. Okay, so so that to me is a reflection of an ongoing fight over memory. Yeah. So that so that it's not forgotten it, but even you know, but there's that picture. I mean, it's not completely memory hold yet. And and I think about the work that people have had to do for generations now around the Holocaust. I mean, when I was in college, they, annually, the students, you know, read the names around the clock, and it was a big thing. And I remember the first time I, I saw that, you know, reading the names of people who died in the Holocaust, and I thought, it's fascinating, but I didn't really understand it, like the necessity of it, mm -hmm. that, that enacting that memory as a political act so that it didn't happen again. Right. And so, I mean, I guess... I wonder how you think about the, you know, with those two examples, how you think about COVID. Because again, I'm I'm expressing my concerns to you that I'm not sure we have the political will right now in the United States to fight for memory of COVID in a way that would be necessary for it to last a generation as an important disaster in American life, despite the number of deaths. Well, I think in that regard, I would say let's look back at the the influenza epidemic of 18 and say, look how much education had to be done to remind people about that. Even though people, there were lots of people like us, you know, who know about it and would drop it out before any of this happened. We might mention it as some kind of an event or whatever, but during this whole endeavor, there's been almost a, a, a new education campaign to remind people a hundred years ago, all these people died because they, and and it was the same kind of stuff, right? We're not going to wear a mask. We're not going to isolate. We're not going to do this kind of thing. So I think there's not a political will in America to do that kind of thing anyway, ever. There never has been. <laughs> so call me a cynic if you want with a little C, but no, I don't think that Americans have ever had the will for that. We don't like to think about weakness. So, you know, the idea that we're so weak that, you know, 2% of our population could just die. That doesn't make any sense to us, right? Or to a certain extent. I, I just don't see that we do, unless it's a war, we don't tend to want to remember the dead. And then what we do is we commodify them into, into something that we can trade to keep doing military stuff. And, and I would even say now that part of the issue with, even the AIDS quilt and the AIDS, uh, the movement uh, that came out of the, the fight to, with AIDS and everything. Um, in our community, it's there. In the quilt bag community, it's there, but it's not there because it's already, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's already moved along, right? It's not a real thing. It's not something that we, and so older gay people, when, when they talk about, that period, younger gay people often act like it happened a hundred years ago. Hmm. And so I, I kind of really feel like, you know, where do we get the political will to memorialize the fact that we're human instead of the fact that we're heroes? That's the, that's the difference. 
let me let's follow up on this a second because I, I think during the pandemic in the early days, um, more people read. I think more copies of Camus' uh, The Plague oh, were plague. sold than at yeah. any point in the history, probably yeah. of this. Um, yeah. I reread it, and I did it on, and I listened to it on audio too because I enjoyed sort of uh, driving around the empty streets of Princeton, New Jersey, listening to to Camus, and then come home and sort of read it and. Um, and I wondered, you know, as I was revisiting that text and thinking about how existentialists would be dealing with COVID. And of course, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I mean, the book is about a struggle with the possibility that, you know, death is imminent at all mm -hmm. times. Yes. And the protagonist and those who surround the protagonist are, they're just grappling with that on a daily basis. Yeah. And as, as part of the problem of the book that's presented is like, how do you also just have a cigarette? How do you also walk down the street? How do you enjoy, how do you live in the midst of death? Which I guess is a quintessential existentialist problem. But I, I don't know yeah. if you dusted off your Camus during the early days of the pandemic, but I'm no, not a I, I went back to Jasper's uh, regular philosophy instead of to the, because uh, he was a medical doctor as well as a, uh, existential philosopher. Uh, and I went back to Carl Jaspers and I looked a little bit at the, I, I actually looked at the Camus Plague stuff just, you know, to kind of remind myself what it was about, but I didn't really you know dive into it, but it is the central question. Uh, you know, if we just, uh, you know, move over to another Camus text, uh, the, uh, myth of Sisyphus, um, uh, that's kind of really, so the plague gets you a good example of, okay, here's what we're thrown into, but the structure is still the myth of Sisyphus. It's still pushing, a, you know, carrying a rock up a hill and washing it run back down, roll back down again, and then having to repeat it. Right. Yeah. And it's also the notion that in the myth of Sisyphus, there's that uh, piece that precedes the kind of talking about Sisyphus where he talks about, well, why don't we just kill ourselves? If it's all meaningless, if it's all without any, you know, right. Um, why would you, why wouldn't you kill yourself? Because he says the only thing that's certain in our life is that we're going to die. And there's no reason to rush to a certainty that you know is there. You should go ahead and try to live. And that's when he rocks in the stuff about, he brings in the stuff about Sisyphus and he's like, it's not easy. I think in one sense, <laughs> as odd as it seems, having a cigarette in the middle of a plague is like, take, it's like Sisyphus taking a rock up the hill. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, how do I, how do I just be smoking instead of be worrying or be dying or be, you know, whatever the, that kind of thing is. Right. And I think another thing that, that, that kind of comes out of that as well is <clears throat> in the plague situation, this is kind of Heidegger and Jaspers as much as any of the French people in a plague situation uh you're you're up against the the angst uh the dread of of no longer being all the time and that's not actually the way we're supposed to be like the dread's supposed to be something that strikes us as a mood from time to time and we're thrown into that mood and we have to deal with the fact that we'll die but if you're actually in a a situation where 
you know, death is all around you constantly, the, the dread begins to move into another mood that I don't think that people uh, take, in, take into account enough that Heidegger pointed out, and that's profound boredom. Hmm. So what you're left with when you're surrounded by death is that your anxiety sooner or later short circuits and all you have is profound boredom. And, and you actually see stuff like this in the death camps in the Shoah. And you see things like this in prisons. And you see it's just profound boredom. You're just waiting until it happens. And so now, what? And, and that's because life is, it, it enters some sort of uncanny distortion of time. And yeah. the normal things that mark out a life and give it meaning are now out of bounds. I mean, I think of the early days of the pandemic, even very simple things, people going to the grocery store, obviously mm -hmm. going to church, going to work. All of it was, you know, some of it was moved for people who could do it. It was moved online, but it was all distorted. Yeah. And, and when you get into that distortion, <clears throat> that disruption, um, you know, I think here it, the best way to talk about this is as a rupture is, is the notion of rupture and then just play with all the prefixes. Right. COVID has been an, uh, uh, COVID is an eruption of a virus, I, eruption of a virus into our system, into our social system, uh, an eruption of, uh, of fear, a disruption of life, a corruption of our political structure. It just goes on and on and on. So yeah. it's a rupture. We're in the middle of a chasm or a chiasm as, as, uh, Merleau-Ponty would say, right, mm. that we're sort of between, we, we find ourselves in life in a chiasm between the visible and the invisible, and, right, between the things that we can see and we understand and the things we can't see but we know are happening and are, you know, and, and those kind of things. And so, you know, chiasm, chasm, chaos, those are all the same word from Greek. And so it's, you know, this is the gap of life. The gap of life is between the visible order and the invisible chaos. And, and so, you know, this is what, this is kind of like what we're in. And um, what do you do? You know, what do you do? How do you, how do you live in that gap? Mm. Cause that's not the gap. Cause another thing about that, that's, that's, you know, it will sooner or later. Something will, will come out of it. But we're going to come out of it totally reshaped because this is actually the way evolution works. Right. Is is at that interstice between order and chaos. That's what life is, what creative evolution is on rebirth on would say is. And. Uh, <sighs> when you finally make it to the end of that, that chasm and come out of it, humanity will be different. But I, you know, I think that it's very important along the way to be structuring, um, stru structuring memorials and callbacks and things to not forget what we've been through. Right. I don't know if yeah, any of that makes sense. No, it does. And I know, <laughs> okay. and, and I appreciate it. And, and I know, you know, we get talking and I know you're going to bring, you're going to start deconstructing <laughs> keywords. 
it yeah. was really important. And it, and it makes me think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, what are the legacies or what are the memorials of disasters long forgotten? And it's language. I mean, the, the, the words that you're, that you are using there, I was, I mean, my question I was going to ask is how do the pre-Socratics deal with, you know, disasters? Uh, I mean, and what's yeah. the legacy of disaster in the right. development of Western philosophy? And of course it's the, it's the, it's the syntax. It's the, it's the way language is structured and the way myths are, are put together to help make sense of right. Im impossible situations of suffering. Right. You know, uh, Dr. Farmer's work, I was listening to you as you were reading the obituary and I was thinking about <clears throat> how, you know, he was talking about pragmatic solidarity. Uh as, as necessary, you know, it's, it's actually very rare for people that are, that are obviously that empathic to, to keep their empathy on when they become doctors or nurses. There, there've been studies that show that, that doctors and nurses that have a natural tendency to empathy actually spend less time with patients because they get overwhelmed. So what you actually want for most doctors is a sympathetic doctor or a sympathetic nurse because they'll actually stay with you and spend time with you. But, you know, what I know about Farmer, what I heard about him, and you know, learned about him over the years and listening to this, here's a man who has thrown himself into the suffering of people in this pragmatic, um, this pragmatic solidarity. Uh, and, and what's really kind of Interesting is right now I'm uh, helping uh, my dissertation director with a course in modern philosophy, and we've been reading Descartes. And as you remember from great books, the Discourse on Method, uh, he talks a lot about medicine and and medicine that could work better and could do things. And it's just so fascinating to know that in in 400 and some odd years since he died and kind of got this whole modern scientific philosophic revolution going in a certain sense, part of it for uh, pragmatic solidarity. If you really look at that text, but that's not the, the end product of all of it has mm. not been that. And you have mm. to, you know, you have to, mm. you, this is a, and I'm kind of, inter I'm interested in what you think about this. I mean, It's like what David Graeber says uh, about how, you know, um, he was he was at a conference and they started, to, you know, he, before he wrote the book Debt, he was at a conference and there were and debt came up as a concept and people were talking about it. And at some point he just asked this economist, why do you have to pay your debt? Hmm. And the guy was so taken aback that the question was so silly, but I see that reaction every time I'm like, why in America, even if you don't count all the office buildings, even if you don't count all the apartment complexes and motels, there are enough homes that are empty right now in the United States of America for not a single person to be homeless. Yeah. But why? But if I say, put them in those, but what about the property owners? But what about the people who, who, you know, need the money to develop these medications. What about the, da, 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 da? what about the, and pragmatic solidarity um, really should be the key word for human beings, but capitalism and um, I would say 
neoliberalism, actually. Neoliberalism uh, has really kind of gotten people so lost in the sauce. It's like you, it's like you're talking Greek if you ask them, why, why do all businesses have to be owned by a single person? Why can't they all be cooperatives? Why, why, why do people have to risk their lives to help somebody with their dream of a small business while the person who's risking their life is getting paid $7 and 50 cents an hour to do that? Why can't, there, why can't all these places be cooperatives? That's crazy talk. That doesn't make any sense. That was the rhetoric and, that came out of your uh, lieutenant governor, I guess, and he became pretty famous for the wrong reasons early in the pandemic because he went on TV yeah. and said, basically, he said oh, the quiet part out loud for once. He just said, look, you know, the economy's got to come first. Even your grandparents would agree with that. And if that means they're going to have to get sick and die to keep the economy going, then that's just the way it is. It was it right. was really quite a display. But I have to say, I mean, when he said it, I said, you know, I'm glad it's out there because that's obviously the way would, that the yeah. society's operating. But they, it's weird because it's out there. And now sometimes what happens, of course, and what I've seen happening a lot in the last decade has been, let's just go ahead and put it out there because once it's out there, people, it will get buried under everything else. And, and now it's, it's not that it's now nobody can say it's not out there, but nobody's paying attention to it. Like very few people remember that Patrick said that, uh, you know, and if you point out to people that it literally means that they don't, that, that they believe that, uh, making sure the economy works is more important than human life. That means that they believe, and this, as I always bring up Jesus to my students, they believe that the economy, that people were made for the economy, not that the economy was made for people. Like Jesus said, you know, the law was not made, the law was made for humans. Humans weren't made for the law. Mm. And so <laughs> that's the kind of shit they do, you know? Excuse me, I don't know if I'm supposed to cuss here, but uh, <laughs> that's what they do. And it's so aggravating and it really just gets your gut roiling when you listen to these uh, people talk because they they remind you of every self-righteous, hypocrite Christian you knew growing up at church talking outside of their mouth, you know? Yeah, um, especially for those of us who, who did grow up in the church and actually like tried to make a go of it, you know, like, like really yeah. took those ideas very seriously. And then you find mm -hmm. that it, as they're deployed and they get deployed against themselves in in, in something like a pandemic and in, in a yeah. crazy way, I, but I, I'm going to stick with this for just one second more because sure, of, and sure. bring it go back ahead. to memory, because um, I, this is obvious thing for a historian to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It, it, um, <laughs> and for those of you who are listening in, this is a kind of like historian talking to philosopher, the kind of conversations you and I have been having now for three decades. 30 years almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do hold out some hope that memory is a domain that's harder to co-opt, commodify. It continues to be a space for solid possibility of solidarity. Now, that I, and memory in, in the form of history can be co-opted and turned into any purpose. So I don't want to downplay the authoritarian possibilities of memory. Right. But I still think it's because, as you were describing earlier, it's not something we really fully understand. Our memories have physical exertion over us. They have spiritual, artistic exertion over us. They come to us in unexpected ways. So it's still a domain that goes beyond it's, it goes beyond profit and loss. And those who've tried to politicize it often fail or, or it 
comes back to bite them. So I guess I'm holding out some hope for memory in disaster as a place where you can work against the grain of these pervasive forces that you're describing in capitalism and neoliberalism that have already pretty well succeeded in saying that, you know, the pandemic is, didn't affect, you know, GDP is back to where it needs to be. Inflation's a little high. We'll correct that as an economic problem, pandemic done as if, as if the rest of us are supposed to say, Oh, well, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal. Memory speaks back to that in a powerful way. It, it does, but the problem, of course, we always have with memory is now do a little more deconstruction. Remember is literally membering back. It's putting thing. It's 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 putting the members back together. So memory is this this thing you could and you can put those you can put those pieces back together in a way that's conducive to getting the the meaning of what happened and you can put those things back together that's conducive to just forgetting about it but you got a placeholder if you ever do need to remember it right mm. uh and so i think you're right that 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 we don't want it to 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 leave memory but i think if i could you know uh, invoke the specter of plato it's quite possible with all of our recording we don't have long memories mm. Uh, you know, Plato, you know, a lot of people, they don't get the real thrust of Plato's critique of writing in the Phaedrus. They think, oh, it's just more Plato trying to keep people, you know, the, the common people from learning something, or it's more this, that, or the other, which is weird because he wrote the fucking thing down. So what is it that he's really, uh, talking about? And it's actually, he's, he's critiquing all recording because this is supposed to be the recording. And when you begin this, all of these ways that we have to record, slowly but surely, people begin to forget there's no long memory. People have ridiculously long memories, given the opportunity. But we kind of live in a society where we we, we undercut memory because we have 50 different ways to record stuff. Uh, in that kind of regard, right? So like we, we don't have bards that can remember the Odyssey and the, the, the Bhagavad Gita. We don't have that because yeah. it's all recorded. Why do we need it? So we need but in COVID the process. Bars. That means we're not activate. We're not activating our long memory in ourselves. So how do we activate our long memory in ourselves? And I would say we need to go back to reading. I know this kind of just sounds like I'm, you know, opening the door up for my own work, but I, th- I think we have to go back to the ancients and the medievals before modernity. Uh, because they had lots of techniques for, for creating memory, for making memory, uh, work better and for making sure that things don't get forgotten. Right. And even if it means putting things in stone, but also in the mind, right. Yeah. I've been, this has been very much on my, thank you for tolerating this because it's been very much on my mind and getting ready to launch. We're trying to launch this digital archive and, and. I keep racing towards that goal and I think, you know, we're going to have these, these COVID calls are all going to be in one place and, Mm -hmm. and, and that's going to be great. And of course, as I'm talking to you, I'm realizing like, and that, and I think, I hope they're useful, but the technology that undergirds them is so precarious 
Yeah. I mean, you know, to make them available and even the transcripts, making those available to people is also incredibly precarious, materially, right. intellectually, politically. You know, things don't have to change too much before the whole system of memory that I've built with COVID calls could come crashing down. And at that point, yeah. I, I, mean, I like your idea of the, you know, the COVID bard. I mean, maybe I, what we should be doing is training five people from around the world to bear this tale you know, in, in ways that can be passed along through, through generations. And, and, and some people will, of course. Yeah, sure. I, I think that one of the things that we should always be doing, you know, I don't really, this will make me sound like I'm a pessimist. You know, I'm not, you know, better than anybody. I'm not a pessimist. Um, I'm a rainbow nihilist, but the, the thing is, I really think civilization's going to crumble and fall, uh, not because of COVID, for all kinds of other reasons. Uh, and in the process, what we need to be doing right now, and I've actually been saying this for decades, what we should be doing is putting together the little things, the vaults of memory, the vaults of knowledge, and putting them where they need to be. I, I think of Canticle for Lebowitz actually is a, is a yeah. text that always comes to mind about this, yeah, putting them where they need to be for the successive, just like, you know, we've, we, this is where we, you know, we know about what happened in the ancient world because of successive accidents of finding things that had been hidden along with the stories that, that we'd been able to keep up with. Right. So I think we need to do something similar with like the AIDS crisis, with the pandemic right now, because we forget. For instance, uh, the British uh, British Columbia has a um, an online journal called the uh, is it the the Yiki or the Yippy? I can't remember what it's called, the Yai or something, IT or something like that. Anyway, it's the name of a salmon in British Columbia, but they just put out an article article recently about how there appears to have probably been a COVID epidemic in Russia in the 1890s. We didn't know about it. Nobody remembered it. They had to go digging around looking for it and they realized this isn't the flu. This, <laughs> this is probably COVID. It's a variation of COVID, the same kind of shit. It went on for three, four, five years. Hundreds of thousands of people died and it was the same thing. It came in waves spikes things you know hmm. i haven't seen that uh and so i'll send the i'll send a link to you if i i, I should have gotten it up before we started talking but um but so yeah this is what i'm talking you know what you're doing here with this you know i've always thought you should do something like this anyways uh and especially this in documentary making and i you know i think this is a this can be a really good resource but it also has to be materialized because civilization, uh, the only people who will have these things if civilization crumbles are the very people who would not want anybody to remember why civilization crumbled. Right. Right. <clears throat> so it's important to, like, take these things, put them into I sound like a doomsday person, but <laughs> I, I just want to be careful. Pragmatic yeah. solidarity with the future. Take all the stuff y'all done, put them onto gold discs, put them onto things that don't easily write, uh, print it up, write it up, keep it in ways that, you know, put it on acid free paper, put it in places where it can be found later if something happens. I, I, 
I think that's, I mean, just confining our analysis to this pandemic of last two years, you can yeah. see the forces, both material and, you know, political and cultural that have been militating against deep memory of the pandemic, including what we just found out that, you know, withholding data from government agencies have been withholding data. I mean, some of it is very administrative, bureaucratic, yeah. some of it's very cultural and political, and some of it is right. just things falling apart. Yeah. So um, I we're almost up on time. I, I want to I want to encourage people to join a second part of this conversation, which we will continue tomorrow. And and this is of all the COVID calls I've done. I, this is one. There's only been a few where I scheduled from the beginning a part one and a part two because I knew I wasn't going to get everything I needed in part one. <laughs> We still have a lot on the table. We're going to talk about yeah. technology and humanity. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about the Anthropocene and as well as about your dissertation and podcasting and everything else. So um, I think we're going to wrap up from here. But just on the way out, I want to just, um, you know, as as we think about sort of philosophy and memory a little bit more, which philosopher do you, you name checked quite a few here in our conversation, but mm. who do you go back to? when you try to make sense of things like what you were talking about earlier, that when you remember your brother? You know, for me, everything always goes back through Carl, Carl Jaspers. Uh, it always starts there. And that sometimes might lead me over to Hannah Arendt, who was his student as well as, you know, friend Heidegger's and, uh, or something like that, because it's very important to literally kind of think about love. Uh, love, <clears throat> love is a, a term that always needs an adjective in English because other languages usually have two, three, four, five different variations for how we use the word. It has a lot of mm -hmm. uh, connotations and stuff, but. I go to Jaspers, uh, who I want to remind you, you, you once leaned over to me in the Great Books program after we'd started getting friendly. And you said, Alsley used to study with Jaspers. <laughs> <laughs> that was our teacher, our philosophy teacher. Yeah. I was like, oh, really? Jaspers? Who's that? I don't even know who that is. I actually and then I I still had up, a yeah, I probably still had a pretty good accent in those days, so I might have said he studied with Jaspers. I, I think he did probably say it like that. Uh, and and I was like, really? I don't even know who that is. I never even heard of that person. And yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then it ended up being, you know, the course of my life, actually, after that is slowly but surely turning into uh, a Jaspers yeah. person. So that's, that's really who I go at. But there's also, uh, when it comes to memory, especially thinking about that, I'd, I'd want to also look at... Um, Merleau-Ponty and uh, Henri Bergson mm -hmm. and uh, Bergson especially. And this is something I, I want us to talk about tomorrow, maybe. That is that um, the memories that matter are nonlinear. That real memory, uh, what, what uh, Bergson would have called episodic memory. I don't know what they call it nowadays. Uh, the, you know, the kind of memories you have of going to your grand, see your grandfather, those kind of things, not habitual memory. Habitual memory is you learn how to walk so that that actually is local habitual memory is actually fairly locatable in the brain but uh episodic memory it's almost more like how plato and aristotle talk about the soul it's infused throughout the entirety of the body hmm. so episodic memory 
uh, if you actually ask someone to remember an episode, the brain starts to light up all over the place because it's nonlinear, right? Life is nonlinear. And part of the problem that we're existing in right now, we have very linear technology. At least we have a linear application of technology. Not a, I think a lot of the technology is beginning to become more nonlinear. We have very linear technology. We have very linear politics. And we understand the past as a line backward rather than, you know, an open realm of exploration that actually is, is highly meaningful, but not analyzable to the same way that something that's right in front of you is right. So the way we, life itself is, nonlinear love is nonlinear belief is nonlinear and the last thing i'll say then is that these three words by the accidents of language love life and belief all derive from the same indo-european root and they're all nonlinear let me just remind folks you've been listening to covid <clears throat> calls and you can catch my next covid calls discussion which will be at 8 p.m excuse me it will be at 8 a.m eastern time thursday I'll be welcoming Sulfakar Amir back to talk about the pandemic and its course in Singapore as well as in Indonesia. So please do join me for that COVID calls episode. And I want to thank my guest, Keith Maggie Brown, for this wide ranging discussion, which I knew it would be. And we'll follow up with part two tomorrow. Okay, Keith? All right. That's great. I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time.